it was June 30th that that happened. July 17th, I got a DUI. I was tasked by my boss to go down to Yarnell and work with the Senior Community Center. Um, and there was a doctor in Yarnell, Lee Wei. Actually, she's a nurse practitioner. And we had a relationship with her with, through hospice. So when I went down to meet Lee, she said, I, I really think you should spend your time volunteering at the Yarnell um, Senior Center because they're falling apart and they need all the help they can get. Primarily because it was a unique situation with, it's called Northern Arizona Council of Governments, NACOG, which is NACOG sponsored the Meals on Wheels program. And that was in with the Yarnell Senior Community Center. Mm -hmm. And the board of directors oversaw both of them. And so that was kind of a hybrid that really doesn't exist. So I went in and I met with everybody. Long story short, I campaigned in Yarnell and got elected to the board to save the Meals on Wheels program, which I actually did. And they continued with that program. That program helped hospice at the time, all of our hospice patients. Uh, they were receiving meals from the Meals on Wheel program. So that was kind of a hybrid. I learned a lot. I mean, it was really fun, but it, for like a year, I was with this, this committee trying to figure out how we could get money to the town of Yarnell. At the same time, I was a full-time employee at the hospice and I was traveling all over the county. So that's how I got involved with Yarnell and I got to know uh, people on our board and eventually I became vice president. So there was like six of us on the board of the community center and that community center in a, such a small town was the hub mm -hmm. of that town and next to the community center is a um, thrift store. And that thrift store through the, the um, sales in the thrift store actually funded the community center. So it was such an incredible mix of quite a few things and I was like in the pulse of it. And I was also bringing resources from Prescott down to Yarnell in the form of the Board of Supervisors, which oversees that area. So I was working hand in hand with um, the supervisor with that district. Mm. And I was also working um, with certain volunteer organizations in Prescott to bring resources down to Yarnell. So I was so involved with Yarnell. Um, it was like I became synonymous with Yarnell because that was my task, you know, to bring uh, enough resources down there to save the Meals on Wheels program. And that was really um, salient at that time because our population for hospice in Yarnell was pretty poor. You know, people, mm -hmm. they wanted to be off the grid. So when you're off the grid, you kind of sacrifice in order to do oh, that. Yeah. What was your motivation behind everything that you were trying to do in Yarno? I connect people to people. And uh, as a counselor, I never really had the opportunity to do that. When I was in mental health, uh, I was very restricted because I really only could have contact with my clients. And to try to get them resources outside of the clinic, 
it was incumbent upon me to do that. So I would try to network within the community to get people to to help my clients. So previous to that, I was a, I was going to college to be a journalist. I mean, my goal was to be the next Jane Pauley, and I got a grant to go to Northern Arizona University. And um, through politics that happened at the university, my degree went sideways. But I always wanted to be that journalist. So I took that passion and I parlayed it into a few other things. I mean, I taught in Korea and things like that. But when I came back, I got into case management. And that's when I really started to be the advocate for my client. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the hardest jobs I think a person can do, by the way, is work with... Um, mental health substance abuse people. Yeah. It altered my DNA, I think. It was so draining. Um, so I still had that passion, and I always wanted to be an advocate for that population. Um, and I did a few other things. I created a whistleblower support group, which was really fascinating. And um, I always had this energy to think outside the box and do things outside the box. But with the... Um, I retired from counseling. I just, my last stint was in a women's prison and I made a vow I would never work in the prison and then I wound up in the prison because of my licensing. Mm -hmm. And I worked every day of my life to stay out of prison and all of a sudden I'm going to prison every day. So when I was doing uh, Yarnell, it was, it was fun. It was frustrating when you're working with no money and I was working with no money. Somehow I attract, you know, organizations that have no money. Uh, and it was, it was starting to become really stressful because, you know, um, we just couldn't make the bills. And then it was figuring out how to pay those bills with the proceeds from the gift shop. But because I already had a reputation, all of, all of my people in Prescott learned about Yarnell and then they started to come down. There was a few shops there, some restaurants and stuff. There was a garden club. Mm -hmm. So um, I could, I did what I could with the resources I had at the time. And that's how I got involved. So um, it's always be careful what you ask for be yeah. because it might come true. Well, I had asked for something to happen in Yarnell that would bring attention to Yarnell. And I thought it would be something that we would create. It wouldn't have been like a, a bake sale, you know, or a bike run, which those things are great, but they don't really generate a lot of money. Um, what happened was a massive fire. And then we lost the 19 firefighters and then we became world, all the, all the world was watching us. And that was something that my prior experience actually helped me handle because that's something that nobody's ever really prepared for. Yeah. And I was really kind of thrilled that I had the relationships that I already did in Prescott. Those relationships um, made me the conduit for getting resources to Yarnell. It was really God puts you where you're supposed to be and God put me where I was supposed to be every step of the way and every experience that I had up until that point gave me the experience to handle everything that was coming at me after that. And then it gave me the experience to handle what happened after that 
So it was uh, life altering, actually, um, in the sense that you have to have faith in the messages that you're getting. Mm -hmm. And the messages that I was getting the whole time I was down there was, you're here for a reason. You just don't know what it is yet. I wasn't even in town when the fire started. This is the funniest thing. I was actually out on a date. And I was um, I was in what's called the White Mountains of Arizona. So I was like two and a half, almost three hours away uh, in the woods. I was kayaking. And I was on the water in the kayak. And the sky was black. And... It was July, so it was, you know, it was July, and we're used mm -hmm. to monsoon. So what I was looking at did not look like monsoon. It looked evil. And, you know, it was at a distance at the point when I was on the water. And I'm on the water. I'm just thinking I'm on the water, and I'm thinking at some point I'm going to have to get my ass off the water. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what I'm talking. And I'm talking to my guy, and I'm like, what do you think about that? And he goes, we're going to have to time this so that we get back in time to get off the water. And what we were looking at was more thunderstorms that were coming our way, but the wind was really picking up. And I don't recall what time of the day it was at this point um because one thing i didn't have a watch but i was thinking as long as we're off the water we're going to be okay so i was more focused on that and i was focused on the fact that yeah there's a heck of a storm coming our way so i um we eventually got off the water and then my phone started blowing up and I was like, I don't know what this is about, but we're going to go, because we were with a group of people, we're going to go eat somewhere. So I didn't pay attention to my phone until we went to the restaurant. And then it was my boss calling me. We were also friends. Mm -hmm. And she's calling me and she's like, Christy, you need to know Yarnell's on fire. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, Yarnell's on fire. And at that point, my focus was on our patients and my focus was on my board because they all lived there. I was the only one who didn't live there. And that's part of the reason why I got voted in was because I was an outside influence and I could bring resources. Yeah. So I was like, okay, keep me posted. And then I made a few phone calls and I called our president because I was vice president. And I called her and I said, I hear... Yarnell's on fire. And she goes, it started yesterday. And she said, they, they said that it was under control. And she lives in an area in Yarnell called Glen Isla. Um, and, and I said, okay, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm starting to pack up stuff because they said we might have to evacuate. And I'm sitting there having lunch and I'm like, okay, I'll get back as soon as I can. Because I didn't drive, so I couldn't just jump in the car and go. So it didn't, I mean, lunch lasts how long? An hour? Within that hour, my phone was just exploding from people in hospice and people, um, my board of directors. And I was, so what eventually happened was I told everybody, I said, look, I got to go. Mm -hmm. And I said, I got to go. I got to go now. You have to take me now. 
And they were reluctant, dragging their feet. They didn't understand because they didn't understand the role that I had. So it was like, well, we have to go do this. Then we have to go back over to his house and do this. And then, and I'm saying, we need to do what we need to do because I need to get back. That was a progression of phone calls, and I was talking to uh, the president at the time, and it was just genuine concern for her and for the board. And I was like, where's everybody else? And she says, well, everybody is packing up. And so I, I hung up, and then I would call her like a half hour later, and she said, I'm outside. She says, the fire is, is heading toward me. At the same time, I'm in a storm, so I'm getting the black clouds. And if you look at it in, in geographically, like Yarnell is down here, and I'm up and over this way in the state by about two and a half hours, and maybe more at that point, probably three hours drive, because I'm up in the White Mountains, and she's down here. But I saw the storm, and I was like, okay... And I said, just get out. Why aren't you getting out? And she's like, I just, what happened was she's on the phone with me. And she says, if that fire comes down the wash. And then she's like, the fire's coming down the wash. And I'm screaming at her, get out, get out, get out. So she gets in her car. She's on the phone with me at the time. And she's running out of her road. And she sees the fire just wash up over her house. It just takes out her house. And she's on the phone and I'm just like, get out. And I said, call me when you get to safety. And then I'm yelling at these guys, you have to get me out of here. And they did, you know, they got in the car and, um, and we just, I said, get me back to Prescott as soon as you can. When I got back to Prescott, she had already left. Everybody in Glen Isla had to go down towards a town called Wickenburg. They couldn't go the other direction. And that's when I found out that Yarnell was on fire. And I was like, at that point, you kind of go into what next steps, next steps. So I called all of my board and they all said, we're leaving, we're going to Wickenburg. And then somebody else managed to get out and they went in the other direction. So that started two weeks of constant movement. It was just constant at that point. And it was a whirlwind. Um, Yarnell was on fire, and her house was the first one, and it burned to the ground. I mean, it literally burned to the ground. That's not an exaggeration. It burned beyond the ground. It burned the, the first layer. That was a 2,000-degree fire, and it incinerated the rocks around her house. I, I was standing on the sub-layer of rock, that it had burned that bad because we went back two weeks later. So they scattered and I wound up going to the Red Cross in Prescott because we had to see what which patients of ours were um, actually evacuated because we still had patients down there. So that was a whole nother conversation because the Red Cross wouldn't let us in and they wouldn't tell us who was there. And I understand the protocol to the Red Cross in one level, but in another level, it's like, come on, common sense dictates that you let us know if our patients are there or not, and they absolutely mm -hmm. refused. They tied our hands. We couldn't do anything. 
We were literally standing outside trying to catch people going in to find out if they could find out if our patients were in there. And that was kind of a violation of HIPAA. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, what choice did we have? Because they wouldn't let us go in. They literally tied our hands. So we were there until like midnight. A nurse of, and I were trying to find our patients. So they weren't helpful. The next day, um, actually, that's not what, what really happened was I went to pick her up to take her to the Red Cross, which was at the college, and I saw the news. That's the first time I heard anything about the fire. And I'm watching television, and I'm like, they're telling me that 19 firefighters died. And I didn't believe it. And I was like, I can't believe that this just happened. And that's when I'm, I'm telling Sarah, I was like, we just lost 19 hotshots. In the town of Prescott, most of those hotshots, it's like six degrees of separation, where when you're dealing with 19 of them, you're not going to hit anybody who doesn't know at least one of them or know the family or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and I was stunned, but at the same time, my brain wasn't even focused on the actual firefighting part. My brain was focused on my responsibility to the town of Yarnell and to those patients. So uh, the next day, it it just, all of a sudden, I was getting called by the Board of Supervisors. I was getting called by, I've never seen, a, I'll never see it again. My cell phone was getting so many calls at once that it, it kind of stopped functioning. I had never seen that before. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know it could do that for one thing. And the second thing is I didn't know how to prioritize calls because once it was discovered that the 19 had died, everything shifted. So I was dealing with two calamities at the same time because I was also on the, um, Weaver Mountain Chamber of Commerce. So that was a whole different piece. So I was dealing with so many different pieces. At the same time, I was still fully employed in hospice. So um, it was stressful. It was exciting. It was, um, I felt phenomenally privileged because it was two days after that that they did a fire command in Prescott, and I got invited to, to attend that. So I actually was one of the only people that was in a meeting with the Yarnell Fire and the, um, the State Fire Department, and I got to actually hear what happened. And at the same time, I'm dealing with that. Um, I'm dealing with the fact that the board pretty much became homeless, and I'm dealing with half of that community became homeless. And I'm dealing with all of the waves of people wanting to help Yarnell mm -hmm. at the same time. And um, there's something that happened that I'll never forget really quick. It was um, a charity organization, really well known. I'm not going to call them out, but they were in the parking lot of my office because my office was in a strip center and there was all of this commerce behind me and I saw them pull up to the grocery store as I'm coming out of the, my office 
And I saw it was a U-Haul truck and I saw the grocery store just start loading carts of groceries into this U-Haul truck. And I'm thinking there's only one place they could be going. And I was like, oh no. And I walked over to the guy and he was all puffed up and all arrogant because he had purpose and he wanted to be part of this rescue operation for the town of Yarnell. Mm -hmm. And he was getting all of this food donated from Yarnell, I mean like crates of food from this grocery store to Yarnell. And I just walked up to him and I said, you know, I'm Christy and I'm with the Yarnell Senior Community Center. What are you doing? And so he proceeded to tell me that he's getting all of this food for the town of Yarnell and that he wants to take it down there. And I said, Yarnell is evacuated. Where are you going to take it? It's evacuated. You can't get in. A. B. Even if you could get in, you can't take it to the community center because we don't have refrigeration for this. I know that like the back of my hand. And I said, C. There's nobody in Yarnell to eat it. And D. If you did take it down there and there were people in Yarnell to eat it, they don't have homes. So who are you feeding? And I said, you need a plan B. And he says, well, I already have this figured out. I'm going to take it down to Congress. And I said, okay, where are you going to go and put it in Congress? He didn't think of the steps. He said, well, I talked to the gal who owns the food pantry, and she's going to take the food. I said, you realize that's a small trailer that's smaller than the size of your U-Haul? And I said, so you're going to take it down there, and then what are you going to do with it? This food's going to rot before people are even allowed back into Yarnell. And I said, so in essence, I understand what you're doing and I totally appreciate it on one level, but in the mm-hmm. other level, you didn't think this through. And he's in, and, and I said, and here's another part. You can't get to Congress because you can't get through Yarnell. Do you realize you're going to have to go the whole way down and drive through Phoenix and then go the whole way back up through Wickenburg to get where you need to go to drop this food off? And he just gave me this dumb look and he goes, I didn't think this through. So I said, come with me. And he went into the meeting with me with the fire department, but also one of my board members was in that meeting because she's on the fire department. And I said, I need you to sit here and just listen for a minute. And he did. And he heard of the logistics issue that we were already having. And then he goes, you're right. I didn't think this through. And I said, you just basically are acting out of emotion, which is great, but you're not thinking. And I said, you need to go back and figure out what you're going to do because we can't take this food. We won't take this food. Congress can't take this food. They won't take this food. And there's nobody to eat it. And that's when he got up and left. And it really taught me something. It taught me that people are so compassionate and so reactionary that they actually cause bigger problems because of that. And I just was like restful in that moment. And I thought, I get it. There's a lot to this. And that was just the beginning of those little fires that I had to put out because everybody was so wanting to help that it really became a huge problem. And we're not even talking about donations. The donations that flooded in were of the, there's money donations, which actually had to be routed. We had to get the attorney general's office involved because there was a lot of scams going on. Secondly, um, 
we had to figure out what to do with all the clothing and and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So there was this part of Prescott that event at one point was a mall, and that closed down, and they reopened the back part of the mall, which used to be a Sears, and that was the donation center for Yarnell, and the United Way took that over. And I helped organize the United Way in taking that over, and it, it was just one thing after another at the same time. I was getting a lot of flack from my job because there were certain people that were envious of the attention that I was getting and the position that I had put myself in and all of the logistics that I was doing that I was getting pressure to actually do my job when it was this organization that put me down there to begin with. So I was battling this whole thing from a work point of view, because my boss wanted the attention that I was getting. And it was really kind of sick. And I had to navigate through that. Like she wanted to get on the news. So I knew where the news stations were in Prescott. And I went and I drove her up to the news station and I talked to the reporter and I said, Hey, we're with hospice. She wanted that kind of attention. She wanted to be on national news. And I'm thinking, I don't need that kind of attention because I'm here to do a job and it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with, you know, being God's servant Mm -hmm. and doing what I need to do to help these people. It wasn't my ego at all. And that actually hurts me, you know, that somebody would behave like that. But at the same time, the pressure that she put under me on, it was incredible. Plus our nurses knew these firefighters. So they were grieving for the firefighters and our company did nothing. Um, absolutely nothing. And I, I just remember going into the office one day and actually screaming at her. And I was like, you have to get help for the staff. You have to. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And I said, I understand that, but you need to get counseling for them. They need counseling. Because they're in hospice and they just lost their, their brother's brother's friend or something. You know, it was all this stuff. So for two subsequent weeks, maybe three, there was fire engines going through the town of Prescott with coffins on them. Going through town to this funeral home, that funeral home, all of that stuff. And that's impacting. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we still had to evacuate our patients because Yarnell was still on fire. So um, I just remember going down there with the same nurse and getting the sheriff's department involved and kicking in doors and and dragging our patients out because they just refused to leave Um, and bringing them up in our cars and taking care of the patients and taking care of their animals and all of this stuff. It was just this constant matrix. At the same time, when Yarnell was actually opened back up, um, before Yarnell was opened back up, I was probably the only person that was allowed to go down into Yarnell when it was still under evacuation. I had to be escorted by the Department of Public Safety and the fire department because they were going to use that site as the uh, Red Cross site. And I had to make sure that everything was in order for that. Um, So there was just a lot of things that were going on, but um, I really did an excellent job with that. and. 
I can't say I never want to do anything like that again, but a lot of really great stuff happened to the town of Yarnell after that, and I was part of that. But after that happened, it was in the summer, in my position as a board member actually came up for re-election six months later. There was a lot of stuff going on, you know, with the, it's called the Yarnell um, Recovery Group. Um, they actually won a national award, but I decided that it was time for me to step down because they had more more people in place, more money, mm -hmm. and um, you get to a point where it's like, I've done my job, it's time to let the community take care of itself now. And I actually stepped down from that. It was June 30th that that happened. July 17th, I got a DUI. And that was because I could finally relax, um, and I had gone to a meeting and after the meeting, I wanted to go meet a friend that I wanted to talk to. And I did something I never do. And instead of walking to the restaurant, I drove, which was two blocks. And I got a DUI. And I almost lost my job because of that. So that was a whole nother thing that happened after that. And, um, and it was interesting when that happened the community rallied against, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I've never had personally so much support for for doing something really dumb. <laughs> the worst part is I was the one who was teaching the DUI when I was a substance abuse counselor. And I taught, so I knew front and back that I was set up for the DUI. I already knew that. I knew exactly what the judge was going to do. I knew exactly how much my fines were going to be. I knew exactly, exactly, exactly the whole way down. And it happened just like clockwork, exactly like I thought it would. Um, so the funny thing about that is, and I just shared this recently um, with a friend, is, you know, the best vacation that I could ever remember having was that one day I spent in jail <laughs> because I didn't have my cell phone with me. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I just decomped. That's when everything that I had been through just hit me. And I was lying in my cell, and I was just like, it was probably the most relaxed that I can ever remember being, was because nobody can call me. Nobody knows where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to ask me to do anything. And I can just sit here, and I know good and darn well that I'm, I'm here for a limited time, my friends are going to pick me up at exactly the 24-hour mark. They already knew it, and there was no way anybody could get me. Yeah. I was I was in a jail cell. I could see that being very healing because you were very busy that entire time, so you didn't really have time to, to think about yourself or to meditate or just to check up on how you're doing. Yeah, and I had a window, and I... And I it was weird because I passed that that jail all the time, and I thought, you know, I never thought that I would be sitting in here. And I was like, you know, I think I was put there too for for a lot of reasons. First of all, to evaluate behavior and to um, understand that I had such strong reputation in the community that I had people I never. 
expected that wanted to pay my fines for me. And they said, look, I'll write you a check right now. And I'm like, nobody writes my check for me to go to jail. Nobody writes a check for me because I broke the law. Yeah. I pay for that myself. Um, and I had the money, which was an unusual thing too. I mean, I just paid my way out of that thing. I still had to go through the hoops, but mm-hmm. once you pay, once you have the money and you pay off your fines, they don't bother you. It's the weirdest thing, which I already knew anyway. Yeah. But that day in jail, and again, I uh, people rallied around me. You know, it was like no stigma, except work. That was the one thing. I mean, the one they gave it to me. They put me in that position, and then they tried to take that all away from me. So that was that was a an interesting experience, and you know everything kind of hit the fan with that company anyway. Not too long after that, but um, I was actually nominated for Citizen of the Year um, by a friend, and she got the nomination in too late, and it didn't matter. That's not why I did it. Yeah. But um, I quit hospice not too long after that because I just didn't like it anymore. You know, went off to do other things. But that whole experience, I wanted to write a book about it, but so much was happening that I forgot probably more than I remember. Mm-hmm. And and I just think it's it's special because everybody was focused on the 19, which is obvious why it would be that way. And I was focused on Yarnell. Yeah. Because Yarnell, this, the, all of the board, they were grieving for the 19. At the same time, they lost their houses. They lost their property. Um, some of them lost everything. Um, and I was more focused on them and, and getting them taken care of because I knew them. I didn't know the 19. Um, but then I was, I was kind of doing this balance act, but my focus was on the town and trying to get that back up and running. And, and, um, I mean, that was, that was probably my legacy at that point was how well I handled that. I was dealing with fire departments from Southern Arizona wanting to donate and where do I go? What do I do? Um, I use my resources with funeral homes to help them help me get 19 wreaths made for the Chamber of Commerce, you mm-hmm. know, to take, because it was a, a big state thing that happened in, in Prescott. The memorial was at the stadium. Um, it's not really a stadium, it's an event center, but... So I had to order wreaths, and I called up the funeral home, and I was like, I've never ordered a wreath in my life, and I have to order 19 of them. And that's when my friend was like, Christy, let me take care of this. And they took care of it. They delivered them. They delivered them to the rodeo because I had a function for Yarnell scheduled that weekend for the rodeo. It's world's oldest rodeo. Um, they delivered them there. Um, I paid for them. And I mean, anything that I wanted, I got just like that from, from all over. It was just a wonderful experience. Um, but at the same time, there I was sitting in jail. <laughs> and I was like, dang, 
<laughs> I know. Wow. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And because I used to work in the jails, when I was working um, for adult deferred prosecution and I worked in a prison, it meant nothing to me. It was just like, hey, you know, I handled the inmates really well and, mm -hmm. um, you know, just went and sat in my cell and probably slept the deepest that I slept in weeks. I was on the top bunk. Nobody was going to mess with me. But, um, and then I tried to help my Sally out when I got out. I tried to send her money, put money on her books, because she was in a really bad way. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And then I went home and told my family, oh, I was in jail this weekend. <laughs> and they're like, we figured, because we didn't hear from you. So that was kind of funny. So how do you think that that experience changed you? People help sometimes out of a genuine desire to help, and then they help out of ego mm -hmm. and arrogance. And I learned how to, to navigate that. Um, so that was pretty sobering. And it changed me because I realized that I made the right relationships at the right time with the right people. Um, which is something that I think is very important to understand. It's not how many people you know, it's who you know, and it's mutual respect. Yeah. And, you know, I don't like to, to waste my time um, being seen places that's not gonna, like, um, soothe my soul. You know, everything that I'm trying to do is because it has meaning to me. And everything that I did down there was because I felt like there was a connection. Yeah. And um, it was really kind of a, a powerful thing, just like with the, the TV studio. Um, obviously, I'm not doing it for notoriety because we just don't have that viewership yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and people still don't know that Bella Vista Community TV even exists. Yeah, I didn't until I was asked about it. <laughs> until you were asked about it. But your show, you're going to put out there. And you have a following. And our hope is that through you, we're going to gain that viewership. Um, and that's kind of where we're at with anybody who's on the show. It's like reciprocal, you know, kind of put it out there to, to everybody that you know, but I'm doing it because there are volunteers. I'm very passionate about the heart of a volunteer and those volunteers, they don't have to be there just like I don't have to be there, which is funny because I feel like I do have to be there. I feel like I'm put, Yeah. God puts me where I'm meant to be. And I think part of it is because of what I bring to that TV station. Um, so that's kind of what I learned is every experience builds so that you have the experience to handle the next experience. Mm -hmm. And Yarnell gave me the confidence to walk into that TV studio and say, okay, I'm here. And, um, how can I help? Yeah. And understand that that actually means something. So that's pretty cool. Um, and just like here, um, in this office doing the matchmaking, you know, it's like, how can I help? Uh, because she was kind of desperate to find somebody who could do this right. And I feel like I can do it right. Not too sure about the insurance thing. I mean, that's, 
I think I'm, I'm a fish out of water with that, but um, I know that, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So that's kind of what it did. Um, really just brought home, I think that's probably the only, one of the few times in my life where I actually felt like an adult was going through that. Yeah. Very few times in my life do I actually feel like an adult. I mean, I haven't had children. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people die. I've seen my loved ones die. My partner just died last year, um, unexpectedly, kind of. And that's those moments is kind of when I feel like an adult. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just like a, a kid every day. Yeah, I know. That's the weird thing. Like, you grow up, and there's no point where it's just, boom, you're an adult now. That's not how it works. That's Pe- exactly right. People act like it is, but it's not. They, and it doesn't matter. I've seen, you know, even having a kid, I don't know if that would have changed me. Because yeah. I have I have friends who are parents, like, they have multiple kids. And she just said some. She actually has a daycare center here, too. And she just said to me the other day, she goes, I don't know how old I have to be to feel like an adult. And I'm looking at her like, oh my God, you're such a great mom. You run a daycare center. And she goes, sometimes I just feel like a kid. And I think that's really important for us to tell kids is you're never really going to feel like an adult. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know sometimes what that feels like. Yeah. But I did during the Yarnell fire. I did in, in taking care of all of that. That's when I really felt like an adult. Like you can step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. You know, but how how many instances in your life do you feel like you've actually stepped up to the plate? Not a lot. Nope. And you don't even know what scenario is going to happen for you to actually... You could still feel like a kid going through that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's some serious stuff. Yeah. So... You mentioned um, distinguishing between people who are helping because they want to help and people who are helping because they want something out of it. Has that changed how you interact with people who are trying to help? You always have to figure out their motive. Always. I mean, even in church, I have to figure it out. And usually it doesn't take a lot of effort because... You know, I can read people and Mm -hmm. it's like there's that instance with that man, with that organization, I already knew him. Okay. Um, Which is because I was, I was part of the um, diabetes association and this was a big service organization. Um, But it was the way that he talked to me that I could tell. And, um, he just wanted to be the hero that day. And, 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 and I pretty much let him know that today's not your day to be a hero. It's not about you. Yeah. Um, so it, it really kind of, I mean, I, I can just tell when somebody is really sincere and when they want it to be about them. And, um, based on that judgment, how does that change your interaction with them? I was in a fortunate position in that instance that I had absolutely 
I mean, I was um, key to what was going on down there. I mean, from state officials to the fire departments to the Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. um, I I was probably one of the many people who had a pulse on what was going on. I mean, inside information, like firsthand information. I mean, I was interviewed for NPR and a couple of other things. Um, so I knew how to handle him because I had the facts. Um, in some instances, when you don't have the facts, uh, it's it's a lot harder, but it's always coming from a place of compassion. I mean, this person really did want to help. Mm-hmm. Um, in other instances, I don't think I ever actually ran across something similar to that since then. Um, so I don't I don't really know. I'd have to think about that. I mean, I don't think even when I was with the ADA after that, I don't think I ran into a situation where I had to, to deal with somebody like that, where they're putting out so much in the wrong way. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious I... to see if the universe is going to give me something now that I have that experience. You know, what's mm-hmm. the next experience I'm going to have? Yeah. Might be with a TV station. I don't know. I mean, that's a definitely a good place for things to happen. Yeah, or nothing. <laughs> we are in the basement. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, that's what I like to do. I Everything that I do has to be related to everything that I do. Mm-hmm. I don't have separation of anything. Yeah. I just can't live my life like that. I think that's a healthy way to be. Everything's connected. Yeah. You just don't know it, but... It's inconspicuous benefit, um, all, all of those great cliches that are true, um, everything's connected. And this, right now I'm feeling disconnected because I'm doing something that I kind of believe in, but it's, it's not how I roll. And I'm trying to figure out this insurance thing and how to make it how I roll at the same time, make money at it. Yeah. And, um. So I like sitting here because they come to me. <laughs> what What made you want to help people? And I know that can be a very difficult an- question to answer. I don't know if it's... It could be a desire that stems from a calling. Um, because I don't always want to help people. Nobody does. No. Um, but, I mean, I'm old enough now that I'm kind of in rhythm. And I kind of understand. The biggest frustration I have is when I try to help people and they don't want it. And then that's my bad. So, and I've, I've come across that pretty recently where I had to understand that they don't want my help. Uh, and I can do a lot. I mean, I can be a force to be reckoned with. But I have to understand that just because I want to do that, again, it parallels that man, you know, wanting to be that person to go in and and make this effort and, and go take that food down. There's this part of me that's that too. It's like, I can do this. I have the resources. I can make this happen. And then I reach this stumbling block where they don't want it. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest challenge I have. The hardest thing a person can do 
is what? I don't know. Right. Nothing. Hardest thing for me to do sometimes is nothing. So that just goes back to I'm trying to train myself to only help when I'm asked. And people almost never ask. Yeah, I know. So that's my biggest challenge is I, I want to help because I've laid the groundwork my whole life to have resources. I don't have money. I have resources. And um, I can't give you money, but I can give you a connection. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people, they don't want that. They, they just want the money. <laughs> You know, so that's kind of my challenge. Yeah, yeah I feel like uh, that was probably a pretty uh, early lesson for you to learn as a substance abuse counselor that people, you know, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. That's exactly right. And I learned not to put 100% into somebody who didn't put 100% into themselves or 80%. Um, and I don't believe in 50-50. I think that's the biggest scam out there. I don't believe relationships are 50-50. Um, I don't even say that. A relationship is 100%. Um, yeah. But you're right. I probably did learn that as a substance abuse counselor. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to scale back all of that energy now and, and you know, trying to help other people. But you know what? I'm not too happy just trying to help myself. Yeah. It's not very fulfilling. And it doesn't take that much. So what do I do with all this abundance? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, sometimes, honestly, sometimes the best thing somebody can do for me is to let me help them. That's true. You know, just let me help you. That's, that's true. That's very true. Um, what are we going to do about that? It's a big question. Yeah. I I just, I love helping people the way that is comfortable for me. And sometimes, you know, I like to help them if it's uncomfortable, like doing, I thought this would be uncomfortable. I thought being a matchmaker would be uncomfortable, but now it's fun. I've proven that I can do it. But um, I don't, I don't really know, but here I sit, you know, yeah, with a lot of free time on my hands because I'm used to just helping people or going to the gym and, you know, that's not really working out either. So, so what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I want to live in peace with myself because then I'll be open to anything else that happens. I'm always open to opportunity. Um, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to run with the opportunity, but yeah. you know, I like to have those options. Mm -hmm. um, still like to take scuba diving, but I think my legacy is over. I think my legacy was Yarnell, you know, in a big way like that, but you never know. 
Yeah. And um, I already have made an impact here, and I haven't been here that long. I've only been here a year and a half. So what I want to do is continue to be of service in a way that I value, not being taken advantage of. That's never going to happen. It's just not. I mean, yeah. I, I don't even think that's possible. I don't either. Yeah. You you kind of have to accept, like, if you're always going to be there to help people, somebody's going to take advantage of you. Yeah. And you have to be just willing to accept that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm honestly burned out. Um, I'll never do substance abuse counseling again because I had a very hard license to get, and I had the choice a year into hospice whether I was going to keep it or not. And I decided not to because I realized that I was kind of um, burned out. Yeah. And I just don't, I don't have the energy to deal with that chaos anymore. So um, I volunteer at church, you know, um, they don't really need me that much either anymore. Uh, so I'm just kind of living it day by day. I discovered, Jacob, I can't really have a plan. And I have to be okay with that. I don't have a five-year plan. Yeah. I don't have a year plan. I just kind of sit and take it as it comes. I also think we're kind of in, in a um, kind of a world vortex right now, stuff going on. Yeah. That planning anything would be foolish. Yeah. Um, I, I thought I planned something last year, and uh, that didn't work out. So it's like I sure didn't plan to move to Arkansas. I mean, I made that decision in a couple of weeks. Yeah. There's always that journalist in me, you know, yeah. that wants to go and, and capture the, the core of what's it like to be us, you know, in this country. Mm -hmm. um, because we seem to not want to communicate that. Yeah. And I think that's very key. Um, there's a lot of people who are struggling right now with what's going on. And it, it transcends politics and it transcends uh, religion. Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe in, in the rhythm of what's going on, I, I think there's still a very strong rhythm. And that's what I'm trying to stay in. And I think that answers the question that you asked me about, you know, what is it that I want? I, I just, I, I need to stay in rhythm. And I haven't been lately. I've been letting something distract me and that's the insurance thing. So I think this is healing for me. I'm just not in rhythm. You know, let go like God, even though I'm Buddhist. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. It's never failed me. When I start getting into car accidents, that's when I know that I'm not doing something I'm supposed to be doing or I'm doing something mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be doing. Yeah. So you're a Buddhist, huh? Yeah, yeah. I go to church um, for the fellowship. My pastor's probably going to be watching this. Uh, yeah, I go to church for this fellowship, but yeah, I um, I just believe that there's many wise people mm -hmm. historically, uh, not just one. And I believe that, quite frankly, I believe that. Um, all religions are the rivers that flow into the ocean of Buddhism in the core of the Lotus Sutra. The Lotus Sutra to me is 
that book on teaching me how to be a better person, how to be a parent, how to be a spouse. I've not had the last two of those, but better person. You know, it just makes sense. Yeah. Totally makes sense to me on a, on a much bigger level. Yeah. And at least Nietzsche and Buddhism anyway, uh, women and men are treated with respect. There's no hierarchy. There's no mm -hmm. gender disparity. You know, women are actually revered. Yeah. The most religious people I know are the people you wouldn't know were religious. And then that posits the question, is it religion or spirituality? Um, and I still struggle with that because I think religion is a dogma and spirituality. Our next door neighbor, when I was growing up in Pennsylvania, he never went to church and he was the most Christian man, never really talked about it, but he lived it. And mm -hmm. that's the interesting thing because you can tell just by being within his presence yeah. that he lived it. Um, and he sure didn't own a mega church. All of that crap. I don't care what anybody says. That's a scam. The Buddhism that I practiced for a while, uh, there is no lay. It's a lay organization. We don't have temples or anything like that. We have cultural centers in sporadic places, but primarily we practice out of each other's home because your home is your is your temple. Yeah. And that's kind of how we did it. Um, but I kind of got out of that too because it was too fractured. And I mean, I go to a Christian church at the same time. Do I really pray or do I just think a lot? <laughs> yeah. I just think a lot. Have you tried different religious organizations? Have you tried going to, you know, temples and mosques and stuff? Yeah, I have. Um, in Phoenix, I went to um, Maharasha, Maharashi Yogananda. I went to that spiritual center, and I've gone to uh, Mennonite Church for a long time because I volunteered. I was part of the Mennonite Disaster Services. Yeah, I've gone to a few different ones. I'd love to go to a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. I think that would be really cool if they'd let me in. I don't know if they would. Um, I think Judaism is really cool. Yeah, Sikhs are amazing creatures. I haven't really met a Sikh woman. Yeah, um, you can go to their temples to find Sikh women, but I think, yeah, from what I've noticed, Sikh women don't seem to be very outspoken. And also, like, men wear turbans and women don't. That's so a sign. Yeah, it's a lot more obvious. Yeah, for sure. And the Amish, you know, the Amish are Anabaptist, and they are, um, oh gosh, what is they're, they're not pacifists. Maybe they are pacifists, but the Amish are really interesting too. And I grew up in Amish country, so um, I'm, I'm still fascinated by them, even though they have probably more internal struggles than most. Yeah. I'm sure um, every time I go back, I'm like, nobody knows. It's funny. Yeah, and they, like, one problem that they often have is like, who do you marry? You're related to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
And the biggest, the second biggest problem is they ran out of land. Yeah. So uh, it used to be that they were in their communities and then they ran out of land. And so now they're in Canada and Texas and, you know, all over. And that just doesn't bode well yeah. for that organization, that sect. Yeah, that's interesting.